0: Section eighteen of Rome This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Rome by Emile Zola, translated by Ernest Visitelli Chapter nine Part two But the man who terrified them all was Monsignor Palma, whom the congregation had appointed to defend the sacred ties of matrimony. His rights and privileges were almost unlimited he could appeal yet again and in any case would make the affair drag on as long as it pleased him his first report in reply to morano's memoir had been a terrible blow and it was now said that a second one which he was preparing would prove yet more pitiless establishing as a fundamental principle of the church that it could not annul a marriage whose non-consummation was purely and simply due to the action of the wife in refusing obedience to her husband in presence of such energy and logic It was unlikely that the cardinals even if sympathetic would dare to advise the holy father to dissolve the marriage and so discouragement was once more overcoming benedetta when donna serafina on returning from a visit to monsignor nani calmed her somewhat by telling her that a mutual friend had undertaken to deal with monsignor palma however said she even if they succeeded it would doubtless cost them a large sum monsignor palma a theologist expert in all canonical affairs a perfectly honest man in pecuniary matters had met with a great misfortune in his life he had a niece a poor and lovely girl for whom unhappily in his declining years he conceived an insensate passion with the result that to avoid a scandal he was compelled to marry her to a rascal who now preyed upon her and even beat her and the prelate was now passing through a fearful crisis weary of reducing himself to beggary and indeed no longer having the money necessary to extricate his nephew by marriage from a very nasty predicament the result of cheating at cards so the idea was to save the young man by a considerable pecuniary payment and then to procure him employment without asking aught of his uncle who as if offering complicity came in tears one evening when night had fallen to thank donna serafina for her exceeding goodness Pierre was with Dario that evening when Benedetta entered the room laughing and joyfully clapping her hands. It's done, it's done, she said. He has just left aunt and vowed eternal gratitude to her. He will now be obliged to show himself amiable. However, Dario distrustfully inquired, but was he made to sign anything? Did he enter into a formal engagement? Oh, no. How could one do that? It's such a delicate matter, replied Benedetta. But people say that he is a very honest man nevertheless in spite of these words she herself became uneasy what if monsignor palma should remain incorruptible in spite of the great service which had been rendered him thenceforth this idea haunted them and their suspense began once more dario eager to divert his mind was imprudent enough to get up before he was perfectly cured and his wound reopening he was obliged to take to his bed again for a few days every evening as previously pierre strove to enliven him with an account of his strolls the young priest was now getting bolder rambling in turn through all the districts of rome and discovering the many classical curiosities catalogued in the guide books one evening he spoke with a kind of affection of the principal squares of the city which he had first thought commonplace but which now seemed to him very varied each with original features of its own there was the noble piazza del popolo of such monumental symmetry and so full of sunlight There was the piazza di spagna the lively meeting place of foreigners with its double flight of a hundred and thirty steps gilded by the sun there was the vast piazza colonna always swarming with people and the most italian of all the roman squares from the presence of the idle careless crowd which ever lounged round the column of marcus aurelius as if waiting for fortune to fall from heaven there was also the long and regular piazza navona deserted since the market was no longer held there and retaining a melancholy recollection of its former bustling life and there was the campo dei fiori which was invaded each morning by the tumultuous fruit and vegetable markets quite a plantation of huge umbrellas sheltering heaps of tomatoes pimientos and grapes amidst a noisy stream of dealers and housewives pierre's great surprise however was the piazza del campidoglio the square of the capital which to him suggested a summit an open spot overlooking the city and the world which he found to be small and square and on three sides enclosed by palaces whilst on the fourth side the view was of little extent there are no passers-by there visitors usually come up by a flight of steps bordered by a few palm trees only foreigners making use of the winding carriage ascent the vehicles wait and the tourists loiter for a while with their eyes raised to the admirable equestrian statue of marcus aurelius in antique bronze which occupies the centre of the piazza towards four o'clock when the sun gilds the left-hand palace and the slender statues of its entablature show vividly against the blue sky you might think yourself in some warm cosy square of a little provincial town what with the women of the neighbourhood who sit knitting under the arcade and the bands of ragged urchins who disport themselves on all sides like schoolboys in a playground then on another evening pierre told benedetta and dario of his admiration for the roman fountains for in no other city of the world does water flow so abundantly and magnificently in fountains of bronze and marble from the boat-shaped fontana della barcaccia on the piazza di spagna the triton of the piazza barberini and the tortoises which give their name to the piazza del tartarughe to the three fountains of the piazza navona where bernini's vast central composition of rock and river gods rises so triumphantly and to the colossal and pompous fountain of trevi where king neptune stands on high attended by lofty figures of health and fruitfulness and on yet another evening pierre came home quite pleased relating that he had at last discovered why it was that the old streets around the capitol and along the tiber seemed to him so strange it was because they had no footways and pedestrians instead of skirting the walls invariably took the middle of the road leisurely wending their way among the vehicles pierre was very fond of those old districts with their winding lanes their tiny squares so irregular in shape and their huge square mansions swamped by a multitudinous jumble of little houses he found a charm too in the district of the esquiline where besides innumerable flights of ascending steps each of gray pebbles edged with white stone there were sudden sinuous slopes tiers of terraces seminaries and convents lifeless with their windows ever closed and lofty blank walls above which a superb palm tree would now and again soar into the spotless blue of the sky and on yet another evening having strolled into the campagna beside the tiber and above the ponte he came back full of enthusiasm for a form of classical art which hitherto he had scarcely appreciated along the river bank however he had found the very scenery that poussin so faithfully depicted the sluggish yellow stream fringed with reeds low riven cliffs whose chalky whiteness showed against the ruddy background of a far-stretching undulating plain bounded by blue hills a few spare trees with a ruined porticus opening onto space atop of the bank and a line of pale-hued sheep descending to drink whilst the shepherd with an elbow resting on the trunk of an ilex tree stood looking on it was a special kind of beauty broad and ruddy made up of nothing sometimes simplified into a series of low, horizontal lines, but ever ennobled by the great memories it evoked, the Roman legions marching along the paved highways across the bare Campagna, the long slumber of the Middle Ages, and then the awakening of antique nature in the midst of Catholicism, whereby, for the second time, Rome became ruler of the world. One day, when Pierre came back from seeing the great modern cemetery, the Campo Verano, he found Celia, as well as Benedetta, by the side of Dario's bed. What, Monsieur Labille? exclaimed the little princess when she learned where he had been. It amuses you to visit the dead. Oh, those Frenchmen! remarked Dario, to whom the mere idea of a cemetery was repulsive. Those Frenchmen seem to take a pleasure in making their lives wretched with their partiality for gloomy scenes. But there is no escaping the reality of death, gently replied Pierre. The best course is to look it in the face. This made the prince quite angry. Reality, reality, said he. When reality isn't pleasant, I don't look at it. I try never to think of it even in spite of this rejoinder pierre with his smiling placid air went on enumerating the things which had struck him first the admirable manner in which the cemetery was kept then the festive appearance which it derived from the bright autumn sun and the wonderful profusion in which marble was lavished in slabs statues and chapels the ancient atavism had surely been at work the sumptuous mausoleums of the appian way had here sprung up afresh making death a pretext for the display of pomp and pride in the upper part of the cemetery the roman nobility had a district of its own crowded with veritable temples colossal statues groups of several figures and if at times the taste shown in these monuments was deplorable it was none the less certain that millions had been expended on them one charming feature of the place said pierre was that the marbles standing among yews and cypresses were remarkably well preserved white and spotless for if the summer sun slowly gilded them there were none of those stains of moss and rain which impart an aspect of melancholy decay to the statues of northern climes touched by the discomfort of dario benedetta hitherto silent ended by interrupting pierre and was the hunt interesting she asked turning to celia the little princess had been taken by her mother to see a fox hunt and had been speaking of it when the priest entered the room yes it was very interesting my dear she replied the meet was at noon near the tomb of cecilia metella where a buffet had been arranged under a tent and there was such a number of people the foreign colony the young men of the embassies and some officers not to mention ourselves all the men in scarlet and a great many ladies in habits the throw-off was at one o'clock and the gallop lasted more than two hours and a half so that the fox had a very long run i wasn't able to follow but all the same i saw some extraordinary things a great wall which the whole hunt had to leap and then ditches and hedges a mad race indeed in the rear of the hounds there were two accidents but nothing serious one gentleman who was unseated sprained his wrist badly and another broke his leg dario had listened to celia with passionate interest for fox hunting is one of the great pleasures of rome and the campagna flat and yet bristling with obstacles is certainly well adapted to the sport ah said the young prince in a despairing tone how idiotic it is to be riveted to this room i shall end by dying of ennui benedetta contented herself with smiling neither reproach nor expression of sadness came from her at this candid display of egotism her own happiness at having him all to herself in the room where she nursed him was great indeed still her love at once full of youth and good sense included a maternal element and she well understood that he hardly amused himself deprived as he was of his customary pleasures and severed from his friends few of whom he was willing to receive for he feared they might think the story of the dislocated shoulder suspicious of course there were no more fêtes, no more evenings at the theatre no more flirtations but above everything else dario missed the corso and suffered despairingly at no longer seeing or learning anything by watching the procession of roman society from four to five each afternoon accordingly as soon as an intimate called there were endless questions had the visitor seen so and so had such a one reappeared how had a certain friend's love affair ended was any new adventure setting the city agog and so forth all the petty frivolities nine days wonders and puerile intrigues in which the young prince had hitherto expended his manly energy after a pause chelia who was fond of coming to him with innocent gossip fixed her candid eyes on him the fathomless eyes of an enigmatical virgin and resumed how long it takes to set a shoulder right. Had she, child as she was, with love her only business, divined the truth? Dario, in his embarrassment, glanced at Benedetta, who still smiled. However, the little princess was already darting to another subject. Ah, you know, Dario, at the Corso yesterday I saw a lady. Then she stopped short, surprised and embarrassed that these words should have escaped her however in all bravery she resumed like one who had been a friend since childhood sharing many a little love secret yes a very pretty person whom you know well she had a bouquet of white roses with her all the same at this benedetta indulged in a burst of frank merriment and dario still looking at her also laughed she had twittered him during the early days because no young woman ever sent to make inquiries about him For his part, he was not displeased with the rupture, for the continuance of the connection might have proved embarrassing. And so, although his vanity may have been slightly hurt, the news that he was already replaced in La Tonietta's affections was welcome rather than otherwise. Ah, he contented himself with saying, the absent are always in the wrong. The man one loves is never absent, declared Celia with her grave, candid air however benedetta had stepped up to the bed to raise the young man's pillows never mind dario mio said she all those things are over i mean to keep you and you will only have me to love he gave her a passionate glance and kissed her hair she spoke the truth he had never loved any one but her and she was not mistaken in her anticipation of keeping him always to herself alone as soon as they should be wedded to her great delight since she had been nursing him he had become quite childish again such as he had been when she had learnt to love him under the orange trees of the villa montefiori he retained a sort of puerility doubtless the outcome of impoverished blood that return to childhood which one remarks amongst very ancient races and he toyed on his bed with pictures gazed for hours at photographs which made him laugh moreover his inability to endure suffering had yet increased He wished benedetta to be gay and sing and amused her with his petty egotism which led him to dream of a life of continual joy with her ah how pleasant it would be to live together and forever in the sunlight to do nothing and care for nothing and even if the world should crumble somewhere to heed it not one thing which greatly pleases me suddenly said the young prince is that monsieur l'abbé has ended by falling in love with rome pierre admitted it with a good grace we told you so remarked benedetta a great deal of time is needed for one to understand and love rome if you had only stayed here for a fortnight you would have gone off with a deplorable idea of us but now that you have been here for two full months we are quite at ease for you will never think of us without affection she looked exceedingly charming as she spoke these words and pierre again bowed however he had already given thought to the phenomenon and fancied he could explain it when a stranger comes to rome he brings with him a rome of his own a rome such as he dreams of so ennobled by imagination that the real rome proves a terrible disenchantment and so it is necessary to wait for habituation for the mediocrity of the reality to soften and for the imagination to have time to kindle again and only behold things such as they are athwart the prodigious splendour of the past however chelia had risen and was taking leave good-bye dear she said i hope the wedding will soon take place you know dario that i mean to be betrothed before the end of the month oh yes i intend to make my father give a grand entertainment and how nice it would be if the two weddings could take place at the same time two days later after a long ramble through the trastevere district followed by a visit to the palazzo farnese pierre felt that he could at last understand the terrible melancholy truth about rome he had several times already strolled through the trastevere attracted towards its wretched denizens by his compassion for all who suffered ah that quagmire of wretchedness and ignorance he knew of abominable nooks in the faubourgs of paris frightful rents and courts where people rotted in heaps but there was nothing in france to equal the listless filthy stagnation of the trastevere on the brightest days a dank gloom chilled the sinuous cellar-like lanes and the smell of rotting vegetables rank oil and human animality brought on fits of nausea jumbled together in a confusion which artists of romantic turn would admire the antique irregular houses had black gaping entrances diving below ground outdoor stairways conducting to upper floors and wooden balconies which only a miracle upheld there were crumbling fronts shored up with beams sordid lodgings whose filth and bareness could be seen through shattered windows And numerous petty shops all the open-air cook stalls of a lazy race which never lighted a fire at home you saw frying shops with heaps of polenta and fish swimming in stinking oil and dealers in cooked vegetables displaying huge turnips celery cauliflowers and spinach all cold and sticky the butcher's meat was black and clumsily cut up the necks of the animals bristled with bloody clots as though the heads had simply been torn away the baker's loaves piled on planks looked like little round paving-stones at the beggarly greengrocers merely a few pimentos and fir-apples were shown under the strings of dried tomatoes which festooned the doorways and the only shops which were at all attractive were those of the pork butchers with their salted provisions and their cheese whose pungent smells slightly attenuated the pestilential reek of the gutters lottery officers displaying lists of winning numbers alternated with wine-shops of which latter there was a fresh one every thirty yards with large inscriptions setting forth that the best wines of Genzano, Marino, and Frascati were to be found within. And the whole district teemed with ragged, grimy denizens children half naked and devoured by vermin, bareheaded, gesticulating, and shouting women whose skirts were stiff with grease, old men who remained motionless on benches amidst swarms of hungry flies. Idleness and agitation appearing on all sides whilst cobblers sat on the sidewalks quietly plying their trade and little donkeys pulled carts hither and thither and men drove turkeys along whip in hand and bands of beggars rushed upon the few anxious tourists who had timorously ventured into the district at the door of a little tailor's shop an old house-pail dangled full of earth in which a succulent plant was flowering and from every window and balcony as from the many cords which stretched across the street from house to house all the household washing hung like bunting Nameless drooping rags, the symbolical banners of abominable misery. Pierre's fraternal soul filled with pity at the sight. Ah, yes, it was necessary to demolish all those pestilential districts where the populace had wallowed for centuries, as in a poisonous jail. He was for demolition and sanitary improvement, even if old Rome were killed and artists scandalized. Doubtless, the Trastevere was already greatly changed, pierced with several new thoroughfares which let the sun stream in and amidst the abatis of rubbish and the spacious clearings, where nothing new had yet been erected, the remaining portions of the old district seemed even blacker and more loathsome. Some day, no doubt, it would all be rebuilt, but how interesting was this phase of the city's evolution, old Rome expiring and new Rome just dawning amidst countless difficulties. To appreciate the change, it was necessary to have known the filthy Rome of the past, swamped by sewage in every form the recently levelled ghetto had over a course of centuries so rotted the soil on which it stood that an awful pestilential odour yet arose from its bare site. it was only fitting it should long remain waste so that it might dry and become purified in the sun in all the districts on either side of the tiber where extensive improvements have been undertaken you find the same scenes You follow some narrow, damp, evil-smelling street with black house-fronts and overhanging roofs, and suddenly come upon a clearing as in a forest of ancient leprous hovels. There are squares, broad footways, lofty white-carved buildings yet in the rough, littered with rubbish and fenced off. On every side you find, as it were, a huge building-yard, which the financial crisis perpetuates. The city of tomorrow arrested in its growth, stranded there in its monstrous, precocious, surprising infancy nevertheless therein lies good and healthful work such as was and is absolutely necessary if rome is to become a great modern city instead of being left to rot to dwindle into a mere ancient curiosity a museum showpiece that day as pierre went from the trastevere to the palazzo farnese where he was expected he chose a roundabout route following the via di pettinari and the via dei The former so dark and narrow with a great hospital wall on one side and a row of wretched houses on the other and the latter animated by a constant stream of people and enlivened by the jeweller's windows full of big gold chains and the displays of the drapers shops where stuffs hung in bright red blue green and yellow lengths and the popular district through which he had roamed and the trading district which he was now crossing reminded him of the castle fields with their mass of work people reduced to mendicity by lack of employment And forced to camp in the superb unfinished abandoned mansions ah the poor sad people who were yet so childish kept in the ignorance and credulity of a savage race by centuries of theocracy so habituated to mental night and bodily suffering that even today they remained apart from the social awakening simply desirous of enjoying their pride indolence and sunlight in peace they seemed both blind and deaf in their decadence and whilst rome was being overturned they continued to lead the stagnant life of former times realizing nought but the worries of the improvements the demolition of the old favorite districts the consequent change in habits and the rise in the cost of food as if indeed they would rather have gone without light cleanliness and health since these could only be secured by a great financial and labor crisis and yet at bottom it was solely for the people the populace that rome was being cleansed and rebuilt with the idea of making it a great modern capital for democracy lies at the end of these present-day transformations it is the people who will inherit the cities whence dirt and disease are being expelled and where the law of labor will end by prevailing and killing want and so though one may curse the dusting and repairing of the ruins and the stripping of all the wild flora from the colosseum though one may wax indignant at sight of the hideous fortress-like ramparts which imprison the tiber and bewail the old romantic banks with their greenery and their antique dwellings dipping into the stream one must at the same time acknowledge that life springs from death and that to-morrow must perforce blossom in the dust of the past while thinking of all these things pierre had reached the deserted stern-looking piazza farnese and for a moment he looked up at the bare monumental façade of the heavy square palazzo its lofty entrance where hung the tricolor its rows of windows and its famous cornice sculptured with such marvellous art then he went in a friend of narcisse aber one of the attaches of the embassy to the king of italy was waiting for him having offered to show him over the huge pile the finest palace in rome which france had leased as a lodging for her ambassador ah that colossal sumptuous deadly dwelling with its vast court whose porticus is so dark and damp its giant staircase with low steps its endless corridors its immense galleries and halls all was sovereign pomp blended with death an icy penetrating chill fell from the walls with a discreet smile the attache owned that the embassy was frozen in winter and baked in summer the only part of the building which was at all lively and pleasant was the first story overlooking the tiber which the ambassador himself occupied from the gallery there containing the famous frescoes of annibale Caracci, one can see the janiculum the corsini gardens and the aqua paola above san pietro in montorio then after a vast drawing-room comes the study peaceful and pleasant and enlivened by sunshine but the dining-room the bedchambers and other apartments occupied by the personnel look out on to the mournful gloom of a side street all these vast rooms twenty and four-and-twenty feet high have admirable carved or painted ceilings bare walls a few of them decorated with frescoes and incongruous furniture superb pier tables mingling with modern bric-a-brac and things become abominable when you enter the gala reception rooms overlooking the piazza for there you no longer find an article of furniture no longer a hanging nothing but disaster a series of magnificent deserted halls given over to rats and spiders the embassy occupies but one of them where it heaps up its dusty archives nearby is a huge hall occupying the height of two floors and thus sixty feet in elevation reserved by the owner of the palace the ex-king of naples it has become a mere lumber room where maquettes, unfinished statues and a very fine sarcophagus are stowed away amidst all kinds of remnants and this is but a part of the palace the ground floor is altogether uninhabited the french école de rome occupies a corner of the second floor while the embassy huddles in chilly fashion in the most habitable corner of the first floor compelled to abandon everything else and lock the doors to spare itself the useless trouble of sweeping no doubt it is grand to live in the palazzo farnese built by pope paul the third and for more than a century inhabited by cardinals but how cruel the discomfort and how frightful the melancholy of this huge ruin three-fourths of whose rooms are dead useless impossible cut off from life and the evenings oh the evenings when porch court stairs and corridors are invaded by dense gloom against which a few smoky gas lamps struggle in vain when a long long journey lies before one through the lugubrious desert of stone before one reaches the ambassador's warm and cheerful drawing-room pierre came away quite aghast and as he walked along the many other grand palaces which he had seen during his strolls rose before him one and all of them stripped of their splendour shorn of their princely establishments let out in uncomfortable flats what could be done with those grandiose galleries and halls now that no fortune could defray the cost of the pompous life for which they had been built or even feed the retinue needed to keep them up few indeed were the nobles who like prince aldobrandini with his numerous progeny still occupied their entire mansions almost all of them let the antique dwellings of their forefathers to companies or individual tenants reserving only a story and at times a mere lodging in some dark corner for themselves the palazzo kigi was let the ground floor to bankers and the first floor to the austrian ambassador while the prince and his family divided the second floor with the cardinal the palazzo sciara was let the first floor to the minister of foreign affairs and the second to a senator while the prince and his mother merely occupied the ground floor The Palazzo Barberini was let, its ground floor, first floor, and second floor to various families, whilst the prince found a refuge on the third floor in the rooms which had been occupied by his ancestors' lackeys. The Palazzo Borghese was let, the ground floor to a dealer in antiquities, the first floor to a lodge of freemasons, and the rest to various households, whilst the prince only retained the use of a small suite of apartments. And the Palazzo Odescalchi, the Palazzo Colonna, the Palazzo Doria were let. Their princes reduced to the position of needy landlords, eager to derive as much profit as possible from their property, in order to make both ends meet. A blast of ruin was sweeping over the Roman patriziato. The greatest fortunes had crumbled in the financial crisis, very few remained wealthy, and what a wealth it was, stagnant and dead, which neither commerce nor industry could renew. The numerous princes who had tried speculation were stripped of their fortunes. The others terrified called upon to pay enormous taxes amounting to nearly one-third of their incomes could henceforth only wait and behold their last stagnant millions dwindle away till they were exhausted or distributed according to the succession laws such wealth as remained to these nobles must perish for like everything else wealth perishes when it lacks a soil in which it may fructify in all this there was solely a question of time eventual ruin was a foregone and irremediable conclusion of absolute historical certainty those who resigned themselves to the course of letting their deserted mansions still struggled for life seeking to accommodate themselves to present-day exigencies whilst death already dwelt among the others those stubborn proud ones who immured themselves in the tombs of their race like that appalling palazzo boccanera which was falling into dust amidst such chilly gloom and silence The latter only broken at long intervals when the cardinal's old coach rumbled over the grassy court the point which most struck pierre however was that his visits to the trastevere and the palazzo farnese shed light one on the other and led him to a conclusion which had never previously seemed so manifest as yet no people and soon no aristocracy He had found the people so wretched, ignorant, and resigned in its long infancy induced by historic and climatic causes, that many years of instruction and culture were necessary for it to become a strong, healthy, and laborious democracy, conscious of both its rights and its duties. As for the aristocracy, it was dwindling to death in its crumbling palaces, no longer aught than a finished degenerate race. With such an admixture also of American, Austrian, Polish, and Spanish blood that pure Roman blood became a rare exception. And moreover, it had ceased to belong either to sword or gown, unwilling to serve constitutional Italy and forsaking the sacred college, where only parvenus now donned the purple. And between the lowly and the aristocracy, there was as yet no firmly seated middle class, with the vigour of fresh sap and sufficient knowledge and good sense to act as the transitional educator of the nation the middle class was made up in part of the old servants and clients of the princes the farmers who rented their lands the stewards notaries and solicitors who managed their fortunes in part too of all the employees the functionaries of every rank and class the deputies and senators whom the new government had brought from the provinces and in particular of the voracious hawks who had swooped down upon rome the pradas the men of prey from all parts of the kingdom who with beak and talon devoured both people and aristocracy for whom then had one labored for whom had those gigantic works of new rome been undertaken a shudder of fear sped by a crack as of doom was heard arousing pitiful disquietude in every fraternal heart yes a threat of doom and annihilation as yet no people soon no aristocracy and only a ravenous middle class quarrying vulture-like among the ruins on the evening of that day when all was dark pierre went to spend an hour on the river quay beyond the boccanera mansion he was very fond of meditating on that deserted spot in spite of the warnings of victorine who asserted that it was not safe and indeed on such inky nights as that one no cutthroat place ever presented a more tragic aspect not a soul not a passer-by a dense gloom a void in front and on either hand at a corner of the mansion now steeped in darkness there was a gas lamp which stood in a hollow since the river margin had been banked up And this lamp cast an uncertain glimmer upon the quay level with the latter's bossy soil thus long vague shadows stretched from the various materials piles of bricks and piles of stone which were strewn around on the right a few lights shone upon the bridge near san giovanni and in the windows of the hospital of the santo spirito on the left amidst the dim recession of the river the distant districts were blotted out then yonder across the stream was the trasevere the houses on the bank looking like vague pale phantoms with infrequent window panes showing a blurred yellow glimmer whilst on high only a dark band shadowed the geniculum near whose summit the lamps of some promenade scintillated like a triangle of stars but it was the tiber which impassioned pierre such was its melancholy majesty during those nocturnal hours leaning over the parapet he watched it gliding between the new walls which looked like those of some black and monstrous prison built for a giant so as long as lights gleamed in the windows of the houses opposite, he saw the sluggish water flow by, showing slow moire like ripples there, where the quivering reflections endowed it with a mysterious life and He often mused on the river's famous past and evoked the legends which assert that fabulous wealth lies buried in its muddy bed at each fresh invasion of the barbarians, and particularly when Rome was sacked, the treasures of palaces and temples are said to have been cast into the water to prevent them from falling into the hands of the conquerors might not those golden bars trembling yonder in the glaucus stream be the branches of the famous candelabrum which titus brought from jerusalem might not those pale patches whose shape remained uncertain amidst the frequent eddies indicate the white marble of statues and columns and those deep moires glittering with little flamelets were they not promiscuous heaps of precious metal cups vases ornaments enriched with gems what a dream was that of the swarming riches espied athwart the old river's bosom Of the hidden life of the treasures which were said to have slumbered there for centuries and what a hope for the nation's pride and enrichment centred in the miraculous finds which might be made in the tiber if one could some day dry it up and search its bed as had already been suggested therein perchance lay rome's new fortune however on that black night whilst pierre leant over the parapet it was stern reality alone which occupied his mind He was still pursuing the train of thought suggested by his visits to the Trastevere and the Farnese Palace, and in presence of that lifeless water was coming to the conclusion that the selection of Rome for transformation into a modern capital was the great misfortune to which the sufferings of young Italy were due. He knew right well that the selection had been inevitable, Rome being the Queen of Glory, the antique ruler of the world to whom eternity had been promised, and without whom the national unity had always seemed an impossibility and so the problem was a terrible one since without rome italy could not exist and with rome it seemed difficult for it to exist ah that dead river how it symbolized disaster not a boat upon its surface not a quiver of the commercial and industrial activity of those waters which bear life to the very hearts of great modern cities there had been fine schemes no doubt rome a seaport gigantic works canalization to enable vessels of heavy tonnage to come up to the aventine But these were mere delusions the authorities would scarcely be able to clear the river mouth which deposits were continually choking and there was that other cause of mortal languishment the campagna the desert of death which the dead river crossed and which girdled rome with sterility there was talk of draining and planting it much futile discussion on the question whether it had been fertile in the days of the old romans and even a few experiments were made but all the same rome remained in the midst of a vast cemetery like a city of other times forever separated from the modern world by that land or moor where the dust of centuries had accumulated the geographical considerations which once gave the city the empire of the world no longer exist the center of civilization has been displaced the basin of the mediterranean has been divided among powerful nations in italy all roads now lead to milan the city of industry and commerce and rome is but a town of passage and so the most valiant efforts have failed to rouse it from its invincible slumber. The capital, which the newcomers sought to improvise with such extreme haste, has remained unfinished, and has almost ruined the nation. The government, legislators and functionaries only camp there, fleeing directly the warm weather sets in so as to escape the pernicious climate. The hotels and shops even put up their shutters, and the streets and promenades become deserts, the city having failed to acquire any life of its own and relapsing into death as soon as the artificial life instilled into it is withdrawn so all remains in suspense in this purely decorative capital where only a fresh growth of men and money can finish and people the huge useless piles of the new districts if it be true that tomorrow always blooms in the dust of the past one ought to force oneself to hope but pierre asked himself if the soil were not exhausted and since mere buildings could no longer grow on it If it were not forever drained of the sap which makes a race healthy a nation powerful as the night advanced the lights in the houses of the trastevere went out one by one yet pierre for a long time lingered on the quay leaning over the blackened river and yielding to hopelessness there was now no distance to the gloom all had become dense no longer did any reflections set a moiré like golden quiver in the water or reveal beneath its mystery concealing current a fantastic dancing vision of fabulous wealth gone was the legend gone the seven-branched golden candelabrum gone the golden vases gone the golden jewelry the whole dream of antique treasure that had vanished into night even like the antique glory of rome not a glimmer nothing but slumber disturbed solely by the heavy fall of sewage from the drain on the right hand which could not be seen the very water had disappeared and pierre no longer espied its leaden flow through the darkness no longer had any perception of the sluggish senility the long-dating weariness the intense sadness of that ancient and glorious tiber whose waters now rolled nought but death only the vast opulent sky the eternal pompous sky displayed the dazzling life of its milliards of planets above that river of darkness bearing away the ruins of well-nigh three thousand years before returning to his own chamber that evening pierre entered dario's room and found victorine there preparing things for the night and as soon as she heard where he had been she raised her voice in protest what you have again been to the quay at this time of night monsieur l'abbé you want to get a good knife thrust yourself it seems well for my part i certainly wouldn't take the air at such a late hour in this dangerous city then with her wonted familiarity she turned and spoke to the prince who was lying back in an armchair and smiling that girl la pierrina she said hasn't been back here but all the same i've lately seen her prowling about among the building materials dario raised his hand to silence her and addressing pierre exclaimed but you spoke to her didn't you it's becoming idiotic just fancy that brute tito coming back to dig his knife into my other shoulder all at once he paused for he had just perceived benedetta standing there and listening to him she had slipped into the room a moment previously in order to wish him good night At sight of her, his embarrassment was great indeed. He wished to speak, explain his words, and swear that he was wholly innocent in the affair. But she, with a smiling face, contented herself with saying, I knew all about it, Dario mio. I am not so foolish as not to have thought it all over and understood the truth. If I ceased questioning you, it was because I knew and loved you all the same. The young woman looked very happy as she spoke, and for this she had good cause, For that very evening she had learnt that monsignor palma had shown himself grateful for the service rendered to his nephew by laying a fresh and favourable memoir on the marriage affair before the congregation of the council he had been unwilling to recall his previous opinions so far as to range himself completely on the Contessina's side but the certificates of two doctors whom she had recently seen had enabled him to conclude that her own declarations were accurate and gliding over the question of wifely obedience on which he had previously laid stress He had skilfully set forth the reasons which made a dissolution of the marriage desirable. No hope of reconciliation could be entertained, so it was certain that both parties were constantly exposed to temptation and sin. He discreetly alluded to the fact that the husband had already succumbed to this danger, and praised the wife's lofty morality and piety, all the virtues which she displayed, and which guaranteed her veracity. Then without formulating any conclusion of his own, he left the decision to the wisdom of the congregation and as he virtually repeated advocate morano's arguments and prada stubbornly refused to enter an appearance it now seemed certain that the congregation would by a great majority pronounce itself in favor of dissolution a result which would enable the holy father to act benevolently ah dario mio said benedetta we are at the end of our worries but what a lot of money what a lot of money it all costs aunt says that they will scarcely leave us water to drink so speaking she laughed with the happy heedlessness of an impassioned amorosa it was not that the jurisdiction of the congregations was in itself ruinous indeed in principle it was gratuitous still there was a multitude of petty expenses payments to subaltern employees payments for medical consultations and certificates copies of documents and the memoirs and addresses of counsel and although the votes of the cardinals were certainly not bought direct some of them ended by costing considerable sums for it often became necessary to win over dependence to induce quite a little world to bring influence to bear on their eminences without mentioning that large pecuniary gifts when made with tact have a decisive effect in clearing away the greatest difficulties in that sphere of the vatican and briefly monsignor palma's nephew by marriage had cost the boccaneras a large sum but it doesn't matter does it dario mio continued benedetta since you are now cured they must make haste to give us permission to marry That's all we ask of them and if they want more well i'll give them my pearls which will be all i shall have left me he also laughed for money had never held any place in his life he had never had it at his pleasure and simply hoped that he would always live with his uncle the cardinal who would certainly not leave him and his young wife in the streets ruined as the family was one or two hundred thousand francs represented nothing to his mind and he had heard that certain dissolutions of marriage had cost as much as half a million so, by way of response he could only find a jest give them my ring as well said he give them everything my dear and we shall still be happy in this old palace even if we have to sell the furniture his words filled her with enthusiasm she took his head between both hands and kissed him madly on the eyes in an extraordinary transport of passion then suddenly turning to pierre she said oh excuse me monsieur l'abbé i was forgetting that i have a commission for you yes Monsignor nani who brought us that good news bade me tell you that you are making people forget you too much and that you ought to set to work to defend your book the priest listened in astonishment then replied but it was he who advised me to disappear no doubt only it seems that the time has now come for you to see people and plead your cause and monsignor nani has been able to learn that the reporter appointed to examine your book is monsignor fornaro who lives on the piazza navona pierre's stupefaction was increasing for a reporter's name is never divulged but kept quite secret in order to ensure a free exercise of judgment. Was a new phase of his sojourn in Rome about to begin then? His mind was all wonderment. However, he simply answered, Very good, I will set to work and see everybody. End of section 18.